chapter 18. The mission is in the name. Black people from the South were headed to Chicago, to Detroit, to New York. Some even came from the Caribbean to escape colonialism. A Jamaican man, Marcus Garvey, was one of them. He'd come to America to raise money for a school in Jamaica. And the first thing he did once he arrived in New York in 1916 was visit the NAACP office. The NAACP was started by two men who had written books about the anti-slavery activist John Brown. In 1859, Brown, a white man, raided the United States Armory in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, with the intention of arming slaves and starting a revolution. He was caught and, of course, executed. Du Bois wrote Brown's biography, and the year it was published, 1909, was also the year a man named Oswald Garrison Villard published his biography of John Brown. Villard was white and happened to be William Lloyd Garrison's grandson. Who do you think sold more books? But instead of Du Bois cutting Villard down like he did Booker T. Washington, he decided to work with Villard to form the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Their mission was in the name. And when Marcus Garvey showed up, he was expecting that mission to be shown in the actual people working for the organization. See, Garvey was looking for Du Bois, but when he got to the office, he was confused about whether the NAACP was a black organization or a white one. And that was simply because no one dark-skinned worked there. It was as if the only black people who could succeed in America were biracial or lighter-skinned as if the talented 10th were the only black people of value. Such an assimilationist way of thinking. An anti-racist like Garvey saw all black people as valuable, saw blackness as valuable in culture and in color. So Garvey decided to set up shop in Harlem and start his own organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA. Its purpose was to focus on African solidarity, the beauty of dark skin, and African-American culture, and global African self-determination. He basically created the exact opposite of the Talented 10th. Garvey wasn't the only one who noticed the growing power of biracial Americans. Scholars were paying attention. Eugenicists, people who believed you could control the quote-unquote quality of human beings by keeping undesirable genetics out, meaning the genetics of Black people, were criticizing and berating the mixing of races because whiteness was seen as pure. There were new versions of the racial hierarchy, which weren't that new because Black people still existed at the bottom. But the argument was that the more white, Nordic blood people had, the better they would be intellectually. Listen, I could give you more of their lines, but I've said this a million times by now. They were arguing what they'd been arguing, that black people were born to be less than, and that mixing with whites gave them a leg up because they then weren't all the way black. This would tie in with the creation of IQ tests and standardized tests, all skewed to justify the dumb black, 
And the ones that did well must have had some white in them, yada, yada, yada. Yet in the midst of the Great War, black men were good enough to fight, smart enough to be tactical, motivated enough to run, roll, shoot, and save, of course. Du Bois went over to Paris after the war ended to document the stories of black soldiers for the crisis, the newspaper he'd started. The stories he was told and that he documented were ones of black heroes. But when the white officers came back to the States to tell their versions of the stories, the black heroes had become black nothings. More important, black soldiers had been treated relatively well in France, and the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, feared that being treated decently overseas would embolden black soldiers, make them too big for their britches, make them expect fair treatment at home the home for which they just risked their lives. Let that sink in. The home for which they bled for, killed for. This was the final gust of wind, not really the final, but he was getting there, on Du Bois's tiptoe, tightrope walk of racism. His past critiques of anti-racists, spinning them into imaginary hate mongers, had finally come back to bite him. He'd spent so many years trying to convince black people to mold themselves into a version of white people. He'd spent so much time trying to learn, speak, dress, and impress racism away. He tried to provide white Americans with the scientific facts of racial disparities, believing reason could kill racism, as if reason had birthed it. He had even spent energy ridiculing leaders like Ida B. Wells Barnett for passionately calling on Black people to fight. But every year, as the failures for freedom piled up, Du Bois's urging for Black people to protest and fight became stronger. Du Bois, the king of assimilation, began calling out white men's twisting of words. It was time for a new Negro, he pe preached, one that would no longer sit quietly, waiting to assimilate. And in 1919, when many of those soldiers came home from war, they came home as new Negroes. Unfortunately, new Negroes were met by old whites. Violence. The normal racist ideas weren't working on black people, so racists had to go above and beyond. The summer of 1919 was the bloodiest summer since Reconstruction. So much so, it was named Red Summer. Du Bois responded to Red Summer with a collection of essays arguing many things about Black people being people. But one of the most revolutionary things he did in the collection was honor Black women. This was a huge deal because Black women had either been completely left out of the race conversation or turned into objects to look at and take advantage of. Even though Du Bois had done this, Marcus Garvey, the Jamaican who had taken issue with the NAACP still despised him. Like I said, Garvey was a staunch anti-racist. Though Du Bois was making anti-racist strides, he was still straddling the assimilationist line, and Garvey thought he was condescending to his own race. That he moved and acted like he was a better Black person, a special Black person, an exception. And of course, there was the biggest beef of all, the conflict around the premise that lighter-skinned people 
were being given advantages and treated better. Colorism. Garvey wasn't completely wrong. Though Du Bois wanted Black people to be a people with the freedom to be different when it came to art and music and spirituality, he definitely looked at himself as the standard. So if you weren't him, light-skinned, hyper-educated, you weren't quite good enough. He also reinforced Harriet Beecher Stowe's idea that Black people had more soul than whites, which meant they had less minds and therefore were better at creative things. Garvey would have argued against that, but he didn't get the chance to because the U.S. government charged him with mail fraud and he was deported three years later. With no one there to challenge him, Du Bois's old crutch that he just couldn't seem to divorce himself from, uplift suasion, was about to transform into a different kind of be my friend, babe.